and Utah skiers and riders, and welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. I just love that opening tune from Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. A shout out to High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870, passionate about creating delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home here in the American West. When you're in town, visit one of High West's locations in Park City and nearby Wanship, where you can actually tour the distillery. We're also joined on this episode by Level 9 Sports, with four locations along the Wasatch Front, including its fabulous newly renovated shop in downtown Salt Lake City. And a big last chair welcome to new sponsor, Uinta Recreation. You've booked a five-star Utah ski vacation. Now mix it up with a five-star snowmobiling experience, Uinta Recreation. The Wasatch Range, stretching along the east side of the Salt Lake Valley, is one of America's most spectacular mountain ranges. When you arrive at Salt Lake City International Airport, you're treated to a stunning view that lures you up the canyons. Utah photographer Lee Cohen remembers his first visit vividly, and he couldn't wait to get back. Growing up in the East, it was his dream to settle in the mountains, so he packed up his life and headed West, living life as the consummate ski bum at the start. Early on in his time here in Utah, he started photographing friends. Soon he developed a penchant for documenting the hidden powder pockets of the Wasatch with his Nikon and growing to become one of the sport's most noted ski photographers. Over the next few decades, his byline would grace magazines, ads, and posters, earning him a moniker as Utah's powder photographer. This episode of Last Chair is about life in the mountains, the glory days of ski bums, and the story behind those amazing powder shots that have lured thousands to the Wasatch. Let's catch up now with ski photographer and former ski bum Lee Cohen on Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. It is a beautiful day up here in Little Cottonwood Canyon. We are here today with beautiful blue skies and white powder snow outside with Lee Cohen, an extraordinary photographer who has kind of made Little Cottonwood his home for some years. And Lee, thanks for joining us on Last Chair from Ski Utah. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. It is a magical place up here, isn't it? Out of magic. It is, as the book says. But you've been photographing up here for many, many years, and we're going to talk in more depth about your photography. But do you still get that special feeling as you drive the eight to 10 miles up the canyon? Absolutely, especially if I've been away for a bit. If I come back, let's say I go on a trip somewhere or I haven't come up the canyon in a while, to go up it again is like to look upon it with fresh eyes. It's like never having seen it before practically, and it gives you a, a greater appreciation for what you take for granted after a while. Do you have any landmarks as you drive up that you kind of look at and are really special? I mean, for me, you know, I love Superior coming into view, and then I always am anxious to get past Snowbird so I can see High Rustler. Are there some iconic points for you as you come up the canyon? I enjoy the whole ride. Seeing Monte Cristo, the ridge of Monte Cristo and Superior, when I first start getting above White Pine, that's unbelievable to me. And then I, then it's just Snowbird on the right, and then you pass Snowbird, and then there's Alta, and like you said, High Rustler, one of the all-time runs to be looking at from the bottom of any ski area. It, it is amazing. So how did you get into skiing and, and eventually find your way out here to Utah? Well, I started skiing when I was five. My dad was a skier. 
in the 1940s, I would say, and his main stomping grounds was southern Vermont, so the old school Vermont areas, Mount Snow and Bromley, uh, mostly is where he took me as a kid, and I'd go to Hunter. I grew up in the suburbs of New York, and I had a buddy whose dad owned a bakery that he would close on Mondays, much to the chagrin of the truant officer from our school. And every once in a while, my mom would let me go with him. My dad took me to little ski areas that are now defunct, Silvermine and Stony Point, near Bear Mountain, just north of New York, if you're familiar with that area. And then uh, I just started checking out all the Vermont places a little bit. I had another friend whose dad had a place in Stratton. And my dad and I, one time we went on a good road trip, driving all around pastoral Vermont, checking out some more of the ski areas besides Bromley and Mount Snow. We went to Stratton and Killington and Stowe. And so Stowe was just a lot further if you were coming from New York, like another couple hours at least, if I remember correctly. And what were some of those things when you were a young boy growing up on the ski hills in New England, what were some of the things about the sport and being on skis and on snow in the wintertime that really resonated for you? It was just like a cool sport. Like, you know, like I didn't have any kind of like super advanced ethereal thoughts about it. It was just a fun thing to be doing in the outside. And I was a kid. And how could you not be having fun if you're a kid out there skiing? I mean, I remember one time I had a meltdown on this trail called Middlebrook at Vermont. My dad had taken me and it was one of the first times I skied powder and I just couldn't get it. And I was probably like 11 years old and I was pretty much in tears having a little hissy fit. And he was just he was like a champ, just handled it super smooth, no problem. And I rebounded and turned into a good day. So you eventually made your way out west. And what was it that first brought you out here? Well, as I got a little bit older, I had some knee problems when I was in high school. And I didn't ski for a few years. And then my sophomore year in college, I had to get knee surgery because I got tackled in a pickup football game. And they took out the lateral meniscus of my left knee. And then I went skiing like a month later at this place called Kissing Bridge Bump Resort out by Buffalo. And right then I said, I am like taking off from school after this year. It just reinflated me with skiing. I just decided I have to go do this and spend a winter out west. At one point in sixth grade, my friend, his dad took him to Aspen. And he came back with a trail map of Highlands. And I remember it was a bizarre looking like ridge line with... The hill, it wasn't nearly the size that it is nowadays, so it was a much smaller resort. And it looked really, like, bizarre, but he said, oh, yeah, it snows every night, fresh powder every day, and sunshine. And then in eighth grade, my friend whose family had the bakery, they took me to Europe, and we went to Austria. It cost 346 bucks for the whole trip. I remember the exact amount. The plane was five hours late, Scandinavian Airlines, taken off from Kennedy Airport. But it, we were skiing off-piste runs at Kitzbühel and winding up in towns like 10, 15 miles away. Kevin Kern, that's my buddy's name, his dad knew all these places intimately. Uh, he was European, and... He just arranged for us to ski all this off-piece stuff. And we were skiing across cow pastures with our skis on. It was so cool. And that had a lot to do with me getting stoked on skiing. I had my first real powder experience at a place called Caprone there. And I thought I remembered three cable cars to the top, but I, I saw recently it's two cable cars to the top. I don't know if it was different in 1972. Maybe it was three back then. And then at some point, you put the skis in the car, you headed out west to the Rocky Mountains. I got a job working in Yellowstone for the summer, and I hitchhiked here from North Carolina. And then after the summer was over, 
We moved to Denver. My buddy and I got ski passes at A Basin. We went into an old shop on Colfax, and it was an old Austrian guy, and he said, you should get the pass at A Basin Keystone. It is two passes. So we bought midweek passes for 100 bucks, and then we camped out the entire winter. Three and a half months we camped out for. Road trip to all these Colorado resorts, a, g- a good many of them, not all of them. Like, we didn't get to Aspen or Telluride that winter, but we got to Vail, we got to Copper. We liked Steamboat a lot. We went there. I remember we camped out in the parking lot at Steamboat one day and drove into town, and it was 38 below zero. And we were just hardy little suckers. We were having the best time of our lives camping. We had three different campsites around A Basin, a snow cave on the back lot. We got tossed out of that by the area manager, a guy named John Reveal. He had heard that we were back there one morning. I came walking out of the cave, and there he was saying, we heard you were back here. We were going to plow the lot. And then uh, we had a couple other campsites between Frisco and whatever the town is over there by Keystone. Silverthorne. Yeah, the one just bump, bump south, Dillon. Dillon. Between Dillon, yep. there's a back road. It's called uh, uh, Swan Mountain Road. And we had a campsite off there. And I, th- I think that area's kind of developed now. But it was the boonies back then. And then we had a campsite at a place called Blue River Campground. That's a summer campground that we just dug a hole out for the car. We were real ski bums. I love the snow cave idea. The snow cave was warm. A candle keeps it warm. Totally. People don't realize that. You know, we used to, in Wisconsin, we would build these little igloos as kids, and, and we'd do it here, too. You know, but it's amazingly warm inside those things. Yeah, a little bit of heat and light, and it's, the heat's trapped, I guess. It is. So eventually, you started heading a little bit further west, and what brought you across the border to Utah? Well, okay, during that winter, I had a, one of my roommates from college came out, and we came out to Utah and camped next to the creek at entry one at Snowbird. I dug a hole in the creek and pitched a tent. And again, it was like super sub-zero temperatures. Go check the Forest Service stats for January, early January 79. We went to go see the dead at the closing of Winterland first for New Year's Eve. And then we came back to Utah and we skied Brighton on the way out. And then we came back to ski Alta and Snowbird. And I don't even remember how I first heard about Alta, but I had this whole magical powder thing like it was fully in my head even before i'd seen the place and then we got to ski here and i was sold by the we were here about 10 days and by the time we left i knew i was coming back for good as soon as i could how did you make the full-time trip back i actually went back and finished school I, i wasn't smart enough to transfer my credits to the university of utah it was easier to go back to new york and finish school and then the day i graduated i drove right to salt lake I had to find a place to live that first day. I had a buddy coming the next day. I found a place in a trailer park that's no longer there, just on the west side of I-15 and 90th South. And I had my ski pass. So you were ready to go. I was ready. And this would have been around 1980, early 80s? 81, when I moved here full time. Yeah. And where did you have passes back then? Where did you ski here? Alta. Alta? Just Alta, right from the start. Yeah, I got a snowbird pass also pretty quick. You used to have to enter a drawing to get the season pass. So I entered the drawing. I had hitchhiked out there in the summer to enter the drawing because you had to do it in person. I got accepted as an alternate. The letter went to my dad's house. My dad asked my mom if he should give it to me. My mom said, of course you should give it to him, Harold. And uh, he, he gave me the letter and I got the pass and on and on it went. That is an amazing story. So you were like an alternate to get a season pass. Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah. That's what I got accepted as an alternate. 
we're here to talk photography and we are going to get into this in just a minute, but I got to ask you, you seem to be the ultimate ski bum. The techniques of being a ski bum back in the late seventies and the early eighties, do they still work today? Do you think? You know, I think that they could, but the world is just so different. Like the first house I rented downtown, not that first time I came out, but the first house I rented with some buddies, it was five fifty a month for four of us. $137.50 a piece a month to live there. A season pass costs like 250 bucks or like my first pass at Alta was I think 175. You could save a few thousand bucks working in the summer and be a ski bum the whole winter. No problem. It was not that big of an extravaganza, but you know, like there are places where day tickets cost over 200 bucks now. People are very enterprising and they seem to be still doing it. And, you know, a lot of people work ski area jobs so they can ski. Yeah, it is really cool to see. So your passion became photography eventually. How did you first get involved in photography and creating images of this beautiful landscape? I started shooting uh, photos of my buddies. I, I got a camera and I, I was kind of into taking pictures, but I wasn't really very serious about it. I just liked shooting pictures. And then the winter of 83, 84 and 82, 83, I started shooting a lot more pictures. In the winter of 82, 83, I had a pass at Alta, but I convinced my best buddy from growing up to come out west and we were going to show him around. And another buddy of mine and I got in on a house at Squaw Valley, just south of Tahoe City, with a bunch of engineers. It cost 300 bucks for us for the whole winter and none of them ever even showed up. So we were like hanging out in Squaw Alpine out the Snowbird, and then we road tripped with my buddy Duff. We took him to 22 different ski areas the winter of 82, 83. It was a huge road trip in winter. And that was the winter I started shooting. We, we went to Taos. We went everywhere. We went to Sun Valley. We, we went to all the places in California. We went to a lot of places in Colorado. We took him to Jackson. Duff got the grand tour. And I started taking pictures. And then the next winter, 83, 84, which is still my all-time winter, December 83, record-breaking snow month for Alta, 244.5 inches, still the record. I was just shooting pictures of powder. I love skiing powder, and I was trying to capture that experience with my friends. Were you using good camera gear? I mean, good lenses, good bodies? Uh, it was a Nikon F3 film camera I started with. That, that was the best there was then from Nikon. It was really solid. I bought a motor drive, an MD4 motor drive, and I had a short zoom, a 43 to 86, 3.5 zoom. It probably wasn't the greatest, but it, it was probably what there was available then. And then I had an 80 to 200 zoom. For the younger listeners, there were no iPhones back then, right? No iPhones. It was only film, people. And only film. And autofocus did not yet exist. You know, I, I, I was a newspaper photographer back in the 70s. So I shot all Nikons. I had the old Nikon F and I had all of these manual focus lenses and I did sports. And, you know, I think back to that today and I'm thinking, how in the world did I shoot action back then without autofocus? I mean, you, I'm sure you go through the same thing, Lee. Oh, I... I'm flabbergasted by it, actually, that I could ever even get a photo in focus before autofocus. Nikon lagged on autofocus behind Canon. And I, I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember when I first had an autofocus Nikon camera. It would have probably been the F4, but it wasn't as good as the F5, which I got shortly after. My ski photography leapfrogged incredibly once I got autofocus. Let's talk about photography and the beauty of mountain photography and also the challenges. 
you make amazing images. And I think sometimes we look at these images made by great mountain photographers such as yourself, and we're in awe of them, but we don't really think about the challenges that it can take to get to those places and be there when the light is just right. As you got into this a little bit more and graduated maybe from taking action pictures of your buddies to scenic landscapes, what were some of the challenges that you faced to be in that right place at the right time with the right gear? Well, as everything evolved in photography, the autofocus then came digital. You know, with film, you, ha you shoot the picture once, that's it. If you mess a shot up, sorry, bud, that's it. Nowadays with digital, you can shoot it infinite amounts of times. You go home and you reshoot it. You're, basically, you're reshooting it when you work on it in Lightroom or Photoshop on your computer. And as long as you didn't like blow it completely, which is actually probably hard to do, you can rescue a photo that is not that great. And it, it's incredible what you can do with it. And also, as ski photography evolved, it became necessary to get better and better shots. We used to shoot during the day in crud. But you're not seeing too many shots of crud in the magazines anymore. It's not anything anybody's writing home about. It has to be untracked. It has to be perfect. It has to be maybe even better than perfect because there's so many people out there killing it, getting incredible photos that in order to have something that makes the cut, it has to stand out. If they know you're super reliable and have been doing it for years, that doesn't hurt, undoubtedly. But you really have to get the light right. You got to have great skiers. You got to be shooting something worth shooting in the first place. The terrain has to be good. For me, it's powder photography. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten more formulaic and it's more powder photography than big airs and stuff that I used to shoot when I was younger. But I'm still like wanting to do that kind of stuff, but I just don't do it as often. You know, you bring up an interesting point, and I think in ski photography, there have been these different eras. You know, there's there's eras where you see a lot of these great powder shots, and then there's other areas where you see somebody just hawking it off a cliff or a big jump. How have you seen it evolve over the years since you started shooting commercially? Well, I would say that skiing is not even the same sport that I did as a skier in my prime. In my 20s, like I might have been a really good skier at one point. And I'm still a pretty good skier, but it's just a completely different sport now, what the kids are doing. Like, you have kids who are, like, five years old, like, doing 720s and stuff. Like, my son, is he's 29. It's a completely different sport. They're out there crushing insane lines in Alaska, doing all kinds of tricks and stuff. It's just not even the same sport that I still do. I mean, I have my version of skiing that is still embedded in my bones. But for the younger generations, you know, each generation just steps the bar up. Back in the early days when you're shooting in the 80s, were you shooting mostly in resorts or were you starting to venture out in the backcountry to get a little bit more solitude in the shots that you were doing? You know, I started skiing in the backcountry a little bit in the 80s, but it was more just for the skiing. It wasn't like it's driven by the photography. I wasn't really a photographer full time yet. And in the 90s, we started going out of bounds out of Alta because Alta has always allowed you to go out of bounds from certain spots. And we started to go to Rocky Point and Dry Fork a little bit and started exploring Wolverine Cirque and it just started getting more and more driven to backcountry skiing. And now they call it side country. If you go, if it's adjacent to a ski area... It's called side country instead of backcountry. It's a relatively new term, really. But once ski resorts started opening their boundaries, they decided that they needed to separate. Like backcountry is stuff you hike to that you don't start at the ski area. Side country, you leave the ski area and it's adjacent to the ski area. And you might more than likely come back to the ski area bottom. 
I know that today there's a high level of avalanche awareness and safety is a really important element. When you think back to the 80s and some of the things that you were doing, was there a lot of knowledge and understanding of the, the danger of avalanches back then? And did that factor into how you would do your shoots back then? Absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, the, the Skadi was the first avalanche beacon that I remember that I had, but I'm trying to remember what the next one was. Like, if we were going in the backcountry, if it wasn't corn, you're bringing a shovel and a beacon at least. And I can remember in the winter of 83, 84, a kid up here that we knew got killed going to do Superior. And he, he did a shortcut on the ridge and he, you know, he just kind of like didn't go stay on the ridge and just kind of shortcut it a little bit and got swept down, little Superior. And the gal who was with him survived and he died. Yeah. Let's get back to, to gear and some of the challenges. When you are shooting out there, it's easy to take an iPhone along. And I know that for, for me, I don't carry a lot of gear with me anymore. I love to reach in my pocket and get the iPhone. But for what you've been doing, Lee, over the years, you need to have those lenses and those bodies up with you. How do you manage all of that gear up in the mountain, not just from the sheer weight and volume, but also using that gear, that electronic gear out in the elements? Well, you know, shooting on a sunny day, it's not much of a problem. It like the batteries are pretty strong. I, I bring an extra battery. It's way better bringing little, like, you know, 32 gig cards. And if you're shooting video, they're way huge, but I don't do much video or any really. But you don't have to carry a bunch of film with you. I mean, I used to carry a bigger kit than I carry now. And I've, I've stopped carrying a 300 millimeter 2.8 lens. And I, I pretty much try to keep it. As I get older, I get weaker. And I'm, my pack is getting smaller. How much did that 300 2.8 weigh? Uh, probably about eight pounds. Oh, oh, man. Yeah. And it's just on top of having an, a 70 to 200. and a, Like my kit now that I usually bring is a 70 to 200, a 24 to 70, and either a 17 to 35 or my 14. But I try to keep it down to three lenses. Going back into the 80s again, what was your first commercial gig, the first images you were actually paid for? The first commercial shot I sold was to a company called Lifelink. I remember because I was looking at it this morning for something else on December 11th, 1985. And it was at the end of the day on West Rustler after a 42-inch storm the day before. And it was of a kid who played hooky from school, got his mother to let him play hooky. He was 15 at the time. His name was Mark Chilcutt. And we called the shot Chills Thrills. Nice. And was he a model for you that day? Did you go out yeah, to shoot yeah, him? Yeah. Well, it's, it's always been working with skiers. And, uh, you know, skiing is kind of weird because it's, it's not always a paid gig for the skiers. Sometimes companies hire skiers or have their ambassadors or, you know, their athletes doing a photo shoot and they're paying them. But a lot of the photography and skiing has always been you go out and you shoot with your bros and sisses kind of, and you're just trying to get cool shots. And I think deep down for most ski photographers, that's what drives them. They're just like wanting to get the cool shot and uh, they love it. Like for me, I always think I can get a better one, even in a spot that I've gone to before that, I mean, I go to the same spots all the time as part of my circuit or whatever. And I'm always thinking oh, I can get the best one ever today, maybe. When you're out doing that and you're shooting with these young skiers how do you set up a shot? How do you get them to understand this is the light I want? This is the hit in the line that I want? Well, it used to be I would really like have about three skiers I work with almost the whole winter, but it's not like that so much anymore. 
So I work with the same people all the time. Once in a while, I bring new people into the fold just because I, I think it's necessary. And, you know, there's always new talent coming. And I've blown it a lot of times on the new talent. Sometimes I can be very, very nitpicky about I want a left footer coming here. I want a right footer after that. And don't make another turn after that. Finish right next to me. Or... I might say, ski this line like this. And it, it's way more fun if you can just let them do what they want. But if I'm operating in a smaller area, I have like specifics that I'm usually looking for. Like a, it's backlit or it's frontlit. And I want them to be facing the sun this way or have the sun behind them that way. Do you ever use flash or any other form of artificial or reflective light on your shots? Hardly ever. It's hard to do, isn't it, out there? You know, like I used to try to use a flash once in a while to have like a kind of weird uh, pan blur kind of shot in a storm. But then I came up with some other techniques I like way better. I don't, it's just, I'm kind of simple at heart. I want, I want to keep it as simple as possible. For your locations, you know the mountains really well. Do you have those secret spots that you're going to go up and do a shoot and you have an understanding of how the light's going to hit it on this particular day? Absolutely. Down to the minute in some places and you know the sun is always changing but i th i mean there's this place they call lee's trees at alta or cohen's corner it's the same spot really i think i don't even know because i didn't name it <laughs> but, but is there but, a sign up there no should I, be <laughs> yeah maybe one day and then i have another you know a couple other spots that i really know the light well and i know what i'm looking for but it's still a lot of fun to venture out and and find stuff because you always find something new and and it just makes you look good. And I like it when skiers suggest stuff because it makes me look like I'm smarter than I am if I can take one of their ideas and put it to fruition. If they're always suggesting something, I, I kind of might get tired of it if they're like relentless. Well, we're with Lee Cohen, extraordinary photographer. We're up in a little kit, Cottonwood Canyon today on Last Chair. We'll be right back after this break. It was fun to catch up with Lee, and we'll have a lot more coming up in just a moment. As we wind our way into March here in Utah, it's time to think about what you still need to enhance your own ski or snowboard experience. And I've learned over time that it really does pay to visit a shop and talk to the experts when making choices, whether it's a new pair of skis or a simple upgrade to your goggles. And that's where Level 9 Sports comes in. I know that we all have a lot of great shops here in Utah that we can choose from. But what I love about Level 9 is its approach to families. With all the grandkids that I have, I know that outfitting your family with skis, boots, jackets, and more can be daunting. Level 9 recognizes that and has implemented programs to not only make the process easier, but also helping minimize the pain on your wallet. I'm fascinated by the newly renovated Level 9 Sports in downtown Salt Lake City. It's only a minute off the freeway from the new Salt Lake City International Airport. It's an old historic building in an industrial area going through an amazing renaissance just on the southwest side of downtown. Flying into Utah and you need to rent some skis? Well, Level 9 is the perfect choice with easy off and on access to I-15. It is a huge shop featuring a wide selection of skis and accessories. And a big feature that really stands out to me is they have literally an entire mezzanine floor dedicated to boots and boot fitting at the downtown store. I had a fitting myself last season at the Level 9 store in Mill Creek, and it has really helped my skiing. Visit the website at level9sports.com. That's level 9sports, spelled out 
www.skilearncenter.com. And check out the Ski Learn Center and Teaching Children sections, a wealth of how-to videos that will help walk you through the process. You can find Level 9 Sports at four locations, including Orem, Mill Creek, the new store in downtown Salt Lake City, and also up in Ogden. Stop by and tell them you heard it on Last Chair. Now let's get back to Lee Cohn and learn more about his approach to photographing Wasatch Powell. And we are back in Little Codwood Canyon today, a beautiful bluebird day out here in Utah. We're with photographer Lee Cohen. Lee, we've had some great stories so far about your days as a ski bum and moving up to become a great mountain photographer. I want to talk a little bit about style, and every photographer has their characteristic style. I think back to my days as a newspaper photographer and then kind of a for-fun landscape photographer, and there were certain things that were always that I kind of you know saw things in a particular way. When you you look at your work and think about what you do, are there some particular styles that you feel are emblematic of the work that you do? Well, I'd have to say, you know, first and foremost, I got into shooting ski photography because I loved powder skiing. So I focused on shooting powder skiing. And, you know, that was perfect since here I am at Alta, like, a, you know, a bastion of powder skiing. At some point along the way, like, I feel like I get pigeonholed as the deep pow photographer. And sometimes it pisses me off because I feel like I have a lot more to offer. But I've kind of done it to myself by shooting a lot of tight pow shots. Like, one of my friends who's a photo editor said to me to shoot more horizontals. In his idea, I was always shooting for the cover. But in my idea, I was always shooting for a full pager. Because if it's a horizontal, if they don't run it as a spread, it's only going to be a half a page. And that's, that's an economic thing as a photographer in the ski world making diddly squat. I imagine you're a clever guy. You probably learned that early on. Hmm, I'm going to do better with this full page vertical than I am this half page horizontal. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just like it's, it's pretty simple to figure out. So, but I've also found like a great variety in, you know, what has become my specialty, powder photography. Like I love scenic photography and I have a lot of, other kinds of shots that I pursue when I'm out. But in, in the end, I'm usually looking for the pow shot. And you can do them in so many different ways. Like to some people, oh, it's just another pow shot. But to other people who are usually powder skiers themselves, they can see the differences. And they are like as infatuated with it as I might be, like looking at a photo and seeing how the snow breaks up and explodes and how this time it looks like this and this other time it looks like that like it's chunky or it's ton of little pebbles that are all the same time or it's wispy or like chunky stuff from the explosion close to the skier but in back of them it's just blower pow in the sky like three times the height of the person and you know it wasn't a one-turn wonder shot because the one-turn wonder might get him deep but the snow blowing up is not that huge so you can always tell that. How do you, from a technical perspective, when you're throwing all of that white snow up into the image itself, how does that impact your exposure values? And you know, how do you keep the detail still with all of that reflective light from the powder snow? Well, in the old days with film, I'd like, you know, I used to just memorize my exposures and set my camera manually, but cameras are so good nowadays, like I just kind of will plus or minus the exposure compensation for a particular situation. And some situations, it just works great on straight auto. Once in a while, I'll still go back to my old manual method, but for shooting POW on a sunny day, I like to try to shoot at F7.1 or 
higher on the f-stop because that gives you your depth of field and with digital cameras i have found that you want to shoot one eight hundredth of a second or faster because at one five hundredth of a second I found sometimes it's not as sharp as it could be. When you're using the automatic exposure meter in the camera, are you using it on spot or are you trying to average across the image? I'm using the, oh, I forget what they call it on, on my Nikon camera, but it's it's an average. I mean, the, the great thing about digital is you can like you can shoot the picture before you have the guy ski and look at it and see how it's, you know, you could look at the histogram, you could look at it and see if it's overexposed or not. And if you don't like it, you can fix it. Do you think back to the film days when you had you had 36 shots in that camera and you aren't going to know anything till it comes back from the lab? Well, some of the best times of my life as a ski photographer and from my skiers were the old days with the light table down in my office. And I would run down to Borg Anderson in downtown Salt Lake and get my film developed. And my skier bros and, you know, skier guys, we would be over the light table at my house just like foaming at the mouth. Like we would be crazed out of our minds. Oh my God, I knew that one was going to be like that. That was one of a very exciting time in photography for me. And you're using a little magnifier to look at the slides. And yeah. Well, we had a, a fancy loop of 4X. I forget the name now. It's been so long, but it was uh, fancy. Like maybe it was a Schneider or something. And then a, a little eight power loop to get in there closer to see if it was actually really sharp. You have been in the magazines for many, many years. Who were some of the early editors that you resonated with that were really instrumental for you in getting into the magazines as a new, relatively new photographer in the 80s? Well, when my first time I submitted to Powder, I sent slides in and I got a kind of like cutthroat response from the editor, who was the editor, the managing editor at the time. I'm not going to say your name, bud, <laughs> but uh, it was kind of like, ah. I wrote him a story, too, called Alta Always, and it was just about my dream Alta. I thought it was perfect for powder. And then, then he wrote back, eh, I'm afraid it's not quite our style. It, this seems more like here's Aspen or something. And then he wrote, and the, the film is not that great either, basically. And I still have the letter, but uh, I was undaunted. <laughs> like uh, the next year I got, or maybe two years later, I got my first cover. On powder? Yeah, in powder. Of my really good buddy, Steve Garrett, like one of my best friends in the world. He's a disabled Vietnam vet. He's a total ski bum. He may love skiing more than anyone I ever met. And he's 73 now. We used to call him, we still call him Grandpa, Relic, Ancient One, Geezer, Old Man. I didn't even know. They didn't even tell me that I got the cover. And I was sitting in the Rustler Lodge at the employee dining room table. And someone came in and said to me, nice cover on powder. February 88. Did you rush out and buy some that night? No, I couldn't find one up there. But, but he, he, they, they you know, brought it out and showed it to me. It was great. But then my big breakthrough in photography came because uh, Dave Reddick, the photo editor of Powder for a really, really long time, I mean, until the very end when Powder just kind of closed the doors last year, he became a supporter of mine and he kind of thought I was doing something pretty good and... He really helped me kind of take it to a new level. Thank you, Dave. For magazines today, and unfortunately, Powder has gone off to the sidelines right now. Just before we started, we looked at your cover on a Ski Magazine. So you're still getting out there. Where do you put your stuff out these days? I try to send it to the magazines. Like, you know, there's just less magazines out there now. And, you know, hopefully print survives because, I mean, for me, I, I'd rather like look at print. I don't read on my phone. 
And I think it just looks better. And, you know, like I, I kind of was thinking that maybe magazines will go to a quarterly format and that might be a really good way for them to do it. And then they can make a high quality mag that has resonance. I think they're still totally viable. So I'm, you know, I'm, as long as I'm shooting, I'm going to be sending to them. Like the biggest thrills I can get out of shooting ski photography are when someone comes up to me and says, you know what, looking at your photos has a lot to do with why I moved out here. Or I go into somebody's house that I don't know and they have a photo ripped out of a mag on the refrigerator that I shot or something like that. That makes it all worthwhile because sometimes I really think that it's a kind of thankless job in many ways with the industry and everything. And it's really like, you know, a feel good, selfish, hedonistic deal. At some point, you kind of think, geez, man, there's got to be something more important in the world than this. I'm really glad to hear you say this because I grapple with this a little bit because I've spent m much of my life in photography, not at the same level that you have. It was my principal earning mechanism back in the 70s, less so since then. But I kind of learned over time that one of the things that really gave me the most satisfaction was not so much getting a check for an image, but it was the feeling that I influenced somebody else. And, and today I do that with my iPhone on Facebook and Instagram. I don't need to have it in a magazine, but that gratification is, is an important element, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's how I get the most gratification out of photography. Absolutely. If somebody like just mentions to me something like that. You know, it becomes work. Anything becomes work. It kind of, you know, it has a little nuisance. It's like needling you in the side a little bit. Like, I still have so much fun when I'm out there shooting on a day that I'm like liking what I'm seeing. Just as much fun as day one. So let's talk about some of the places that you love to shoot. I mean, can you, without giving away maybe too many secrets, what are some of your favorite places here in Utah to shoot? It's all incredible. I've got my little spots up here at Alta. I like the, like, you know, the backcountry at Alta. Uh, Rocky Point is maybe the most photographed place on earth, possibly. Even at, at one point when Freeze Magazine was around, the photo editor said, if I see any more slides from Rocky Point, I'm throwing them in the garbage. And I still go there. I still get put shots published there. It is just an incredible mecca. And I find that you can always make a place look different. You shoot it with a different millimeter lens or from a different spot. If you shift your location even just a few feet, you're making it look different. And change lenses, it's way different. And, you know, you just got to try to change your approach and make the same old thing look different. And it can be challenging, but I don't find it to be that difficult. And there's humongous opportunities in the resorts here and out of the resorts. Do you go up with a camera every time you're on the mountain? Absolutely not. And then, like as I've gotten old, when I was younger, and sometimes I kind of beat myself up over this because I miss opportunities by not having it with me all the time. And, and it doesn't seem like it would be that much of a pain in the ass to have a small backpack with a small camera and, with a, and a small zoom on it. But I just want to go skiing sometimes. And I got to keep it alive. <laughs> and, and especially on storm days. I used to like to shoot on storm days because nobody did it. And it gave me an edge, I thought. But now there's such a humongous photography scene that everybody's out there shooting all the time. And I'm only going to shoot when I think it's really worth getting the goods. And I want to go skiing on those storm days. And I want to keep my love for skiing alive. And, you know, after at some point, I'll probably stop shooting pictures. And I'm hoping I'm still skiing and loving it. I want to talk about the new generation of photographers, but before we do that, who are some of the photographers over your career that you've shot alongside of here in Utah? Scott Markowitz and, and I were the two photographers in 
Little Cottonwood for a really long time and there weren't that many people around. And he could be the greatest ski photographer of all time, perhaps. Uh, like, he's just like a machine and he had like all the contracts when I was first coming up and uh, he's just an incredible photographer. Chris Noble was a photographer around here, but skiing wasn't his main gig. He was kind of did a lot of mountaineering and, and some climbing stuff. And he had a big deal going with the North Face. He was really like tapped into North Face. They're the, the bigger guys around here. I hope I'm not leaving anybody out, you guys. That's okay. They'll, they'll let us know. As you look at how it's changed today, and, and I really get excited when I look at the new wave of photography that's coming through from the young photographers that is really looking at things a little bit different, maybe processing a little bit different. I kind of see a bit of the, I'll call it the Instagram age coming out. How do you see the new generation of photographers coming up and what do they represent? Well, I think that there's just so much more quantity out there. It makes it tougher for somebody like me, let's say, or for any individual. Like it, it, it's more competitive, but I think that they're, you know, they're taking it to new heights too at the same time. I don't think they're doing anything necessarily that different than what me or any of us other old fogies are doing, but they're hungry and the young guys are out there pushing the bar and they're out there all the time like I was when I was their age and they're getting it done. Being hungry is like a huge factor in getting anything done. Like if you're a basketball player, you know, you're out there practicing your basketball. If you're a football player, you're running sprints and getting your knees high. If you're a ski photographer, you're out there shooting ski pictures. Is there anything that's characteristic about the style and how the style of imagery is changing? I don't think that much. I think like you go through like little periods of Oh, okay, we're backing off on, like there was a while where the big air shots were really, really in style, and they're still in style, but like it's, it seems like they went back to more pow shots like lately in the last few years. I see like ski areas will advertise skiers in powder more than they do air, but uh, air stuff is super exciting, and the pow shots get to be mundane, I guess. Yeah. Do you have any tips for recreational skiers who are out here in Utah on a vacation and they just want to get this great pow shot of their buddies? Any simple tips that you can give them on how to get a great shot? You know, if you're shooting with your phone, I probably can't help you because I don't shoot with my phone hardly ever. But if you're shooting with a real camera, concentrate on following your subject. Try to set up your shots. If you're not a pro... Try to set up your shots to make the odds be in your favor and have the light working in your favor, either being side lit, front lit, back lit. If you're shooting in the storm, go out when there's a lot of snowflakes falling. I think what you said about light, a lot of people don't think about light. We see this in the Zoom era where someone sits themselves right up against a window and the backlight comes through. But thinking about that light is pretty vital to a good shot, isn't it? Yeah. And the conditions are important. Like, you know, to average uh, recreational skier on the hill, it might not be so important that it has to be stellar conditions of beautiful sparkly powder that's untracked, but it'd help. It's going to make it look better. Like getting shots of your buddies in skied up snow is good. Or, you know, the biggest thing is I would say to my skiers, skiing a powder, don't lay it over because in Utah, it's deep enough. You don't have to fake it. Just try to ski with form and style. Don't bring your hands too high. Don't make your hands too low. No higher than like a little below your shoulders. Alternating pole plants in the powder. Ski with style. Form is everything. 
Great advice. Lee Cohen, thanks for sharing all these stories today. We're going to close out this episode of Last Chair with our fresh track sections, a few questions to close things out. First of all, a simple one, Nikon, Canon, Sony? I think they're all great. I've been a Nikon person my whole life. So, you know, at one point I might have thought about changing when Nikon was lagging behind Canon in the autofocus. But they were a year behind or a year and a half, and then they had it. And I love my Nikon equipment. It's burly. It can take a beating. I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm not like the most careful person, so I'm a little abusive of the equipment, and it's, it's done me well. I'm with you on that. That Nikon F, you could drive nails with that thing back in the 70s. I still have one of my Nikon F, too. I still have one. I don't think I do. I've got like an FA and an FM, but I, somehow I got rid of all of those. But do you have a favorite Utah ski run, either... A resort run or a backcountry? High Rustler is my favorite run in the world. On a powder day when it's smooth, I don't like it when it's bumps anymore because I've had a knee replacement and I'm just getting older and I don't ski bumps anymore. When it's it's north facing, the snow stays good. When it's smooth or it's powder, it's the greatest run ever. I looked up there today and it was bumps. So I didn't ski today. So I didn't have a I chance. I heard it's skiing good though. It looked, you know, it did look pretty good though, the top, top especially. Do you have an image? that's very special to you? It'd probably be impossible for me to say this is my favorite image ever because it, it just changes. Like I've, I've been really fortunate enough to work with some great skiers over the years and they've all become friends of mine. You know, we started as friends before we were like professionally like skiing together. You know, the best one of all of them is my son who's a pro skier and I've gotten to shoot him, I guess probably more than anybody because I've been ma making him work for me since he was a little kid. Well, he's, he's there and he's free, right? Yeah, and he rips. Like, he's as good as anybody. Cool. You have a favorite High West whiskey brand? I've tried them all a little bit. I'm going to say Campfire. I love Campfire. It's just so it's different. Smoky. Very yeah. distinct, very smoky. Last one. In a single word, what is your passion for mountain photography meant to you? Hard one, Powder. Huh? Powder. Yeah. Powder. We'll take it. Lee Cohen, thanks for sharing all of these wonderful stories and insights. We have loved your photography these past few decades and keep at it. We love it. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks to Lee Cohen for sharing his story. Ski bum turned photographer. Watch for his byline as you're scanning great Utah powder shots. Are you heading to Utah this winter? Now that you've booked your five-star ski vacation, now let's talk about that five-star snowmobile experience for your day or two off the slopes. On a Utah Recreation snowmobile adventure, you're not limited to ski lifts. You can experience the Wasatch Range or the High Uintas from a completely different perspective on your sled. Utah Recreation offers world-class snowmobiling with both guided and self-guided tours. And if you're looking for a bit more of an adventure, Uinta Recreation offers a true backcountry tour that combines both trail and off-trail riding to suit your experience and skill. It's a truly personalized experience. We have some amazing terrain not far from the ski areas, and Uinta Recreation is a perfect way to explore that. You went to recreation in Heber City, just 20 minutes from Park City and only an hour from Salt Lake City. Check it out at uwintarecreation.com. You went to recreation, better service, better equipment, and a better experience. 
The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. Thank you for joining us on Last Chair. We'll be back soon with more episodes. And we do have some great episodes coming up in March. Next up, we'll talk with Lexi Dowdle about her Kapowder project. Check it out at kapowder.com. And we'll chat with ski industry legend Bill Jensen about his career and also the new project to modernize Utah's Sundance Resort with new lifts and much more in the works. To close this out, let's welcome our friends Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. Thanks for listening today. Please remember to subscribe to Last Chair to have every episode delivered direct to you. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to ski. Oh, I love to ski. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. Oh, I love to ski.